This morning, I would ask you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, where we find ourselves this morning in verses 21 through 35. Matthew, chapter 18, 21 through 35, this being part five of a series on the children of the kingdom. Follow along as I read, beginning in verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed him 10,000 talents. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. The slave, therefore, falling down, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell down and began to entreat him, saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you. He was unwilling, however, but went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave. I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I have had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So shall my heavenly father also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Here Jesus continues his discourse on the child likeness of the believer. And of course, this is in response to the bickering of his proud disciples over which one was going to be greatest in the kingdom. Jesus has placed a small little child that could barely walk on his lap as an object lesson to help them and to help all of us understand how we are to live as children in the kingdom, how we are to get along with one another, how we are to function in the body of Christ. And as we have set at his feet over the last few weeks, we have learned that, first of all, we enter the kingdom as a child. Secondly, we learn that we must be protected as children. Thirdly, we learn that we must be nurtured as children. Fourthly, that we must be disciplined as children. And now, fifthly and finally, we must be forgiven as children. Now, frankly, forgiveness is a foreign concept in our society today. 
we prefer the attitude of go ahead and make my day. I saw a sign not too long ago. It said, I don't get mad. I get even. That's the mentality of our society. You have to look no further than the road rage that is so prevalent in our society. And you will see how quickly people are to forgive. Ha ha. People are obsessed today with individual rights. Every ethnic group or special interest group seems to be hyper vigilant to somehow respond to any act of perceived insult. Can you imagine Hollywood filming motion pictures where truly offended parties somehow manifest attitudes of forgiveness and forbearance? That wouldn't sell, would it? We live in a very litigious society. Commonly, we see these signs on billboards and we hear them on television. Have you been injured? Hoping that somehow people will say, well, you know what I have. Well, then you come to me and I'll get you taken care of. Currently, 80 to 90 million lawsuits are filed every year in the United States of America. Can you imagine that? That's 150 suits per minute. By the way, the overwhelming majority of them are frivolous. Those who have less are commonly targeting those who have more. And all too often you have greedy lawyers encouraging others to sue, which is a means of generating income for themselves. And seldom do you hear the lawyers saying, you know what, why don't we talk about forgiveness? It's interesting that doing a little research, I discovered that over 70 percent of the world's lawyers are here in the United States and we add 50,000 new lawyers every year. That's 622,000 lawyers today in the United States. Now, in case you're a lawyer or you're listening to me, please understand I have no bone to pick with most lawyers. Many of them are good and godly men, but obviously there is a problem in our culture. It's estimated today that every person in the United States of America has a one in four chance of having a potentially devastating lawsuit filed against them sometime in the future. Especially those who have more than others. And, of course, we all pay for that, don't we, with higher insurance premiums for medical and property insurance and so on. Well, sadly, the arrogance of unforgiveness has even found a place in the church, in the body of Christ, where you have members that walk around like sore tailed cats, easily offended with the slightest injury, whether it's a misdemeanor that was real or perceived. And, of course, then in their mind, that justifies outbursts of anger and sometimes even the permanent severing of relationships, church splits and on it goes. Well, today's text gives us some very practical and much needed insight into the vital doctrine of forgiveness. And, folks, it's foundational for us all to understand that because we are all sinners, we're all going to sin against each other from time to time. We all know that. We're all going to offend, first of all, God and then other people. That's just a part of our fallenness. 
And apart from forgiveness, we know that the wages of sin is death. And so we must rejoice even in our multiplied sins that our Heavenly Father continues to forgive us. But folks, bottom line, relationships simply cannot work apart from forgiveness. This is why God puts such a premium on forgiveness. But some will ask, well, what are the conditions for forgiveness? And how do we reconcile Jesus' teachings on disciplining those who live in persistent sin with the doctrines of forgiveness? And, and, and how often should we forgive? Can we forgive someone who is unrepentant? What about repeat offenders? And does forgiveness cancel out the need for justice? What are the consequences for being unforgiving? Likewise, what are the blessings when we are forgiving? Well, the scripture answers all of these, and we're going to try to answer most all, if not all of these here this morning. Certainly not to the extent that I would like, but I believe that we will get a good overview. Well, again, the context here is Jesus has this little child sitting on his lap, probably one of Peter's family members in Peter's home as a living example of humility and forgiveness. Children are very forgiving of us, aren't they? And likewise, because of their immaturity and their helplessness, they're easy to forgive, even when they mistreat us, as little stinkers will often do. And now the Lord Jesus closes his discourse by taking them to really the highest peak of divine virtues, that of forgiveness. And certainly the Lord Jesus was the supreme example of forgiveness, knowing that he was going to be the quintessential object lesson in just a few short weeks when he hung on a cross for those who had offended him and his holiness. And after experiencing unimaginable and undeserved humiliation, after being cursed and, and mocked and spat upon and beaten and, and flogged with barbaric cruelty, as he hangs upon the cross being tortured, he said in Luke twenty three thirty four, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Beloved, please hear this. We are most like God when we forgive. It's the highest of human virtues. It is the pinnacle of Christ likeness. For when you think about it, we who have been forgiven most should be most forgiving. But it's sad to see those who keep a record of wrongs and like a coiled snake ready to strike. They lay in places where others walk, ready to lash out against them and remind them of some offense that was committed against them sometime in the past. And then with the fangs of revenge, they inject the venom of malice. Folks, there's no place for that in the body of Christ. Instead, according to Ephesians 4.30, the Apostle Paul Tells us that if you harbor unforgiveness in your heart, you're going to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And verses 32 through 33 goes on to say, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. 
and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. This is utterly essential to unity in marriage and families in the church. Now, as we look at the text in verse 21, it says, then Peter came and said to him, then referring to after Jesus had been teaching on disciplining persistent, persistently unrepentant people in the church and how we if they're if they're if they continue in their sin, we're to ostracize them. Then, in other words, after discussing that, Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times? Well, this is a curious statement, but if you understand the context, it's really not. You see, the rabbis in those days taught that we that you were to give forgive people three times, you know, three strikes and you're out. That was the idea. And so Peter must have reasoned, well, why don't I double that plus one? You know, that 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 would seem to be an appropriate limit, given what I know about my Lord. Well, it's a legitimate question. So he says, if my brother in Christ persists in sinning against me, how many times am I supposed to forgive him? Well, Jesus said in verse 22, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. In other words, there should be no limit to our forgiveness. You see, friends, mercy has no boundaries. Grace has no limit. The love of God is an infinite reservoir of of compassion for the broken and the contrite of spirit. In fact, Jesus said in Luke 17, 4, that if a fellow believer sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent. Forgive him. You see, folks, there must be no end to our forgiveness because there is no end to God's forgiveness towards us. Very simple principle. Imagine if people in marriages, people in the church and in families would heed the words found in Colossians 3, beginning in verse 12. Those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion. Kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Friends, I ask you, how many times have you gone to the well of forgiveness and found it dry? With the Lord. It's never happened. So to bring all of this home, Jesus uses a parable, a parable of a man who received mercy, the forgiveness of a debt that he could never pay. Yet this same man refused to grant the same forgiveness to a fellow slave for some paltry debt that could have easily been paid. And here we see the premium God places on forgiveness and the severity of chastening that can be ours when we refuse to forgive. Verse 23, for this reason, he says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. Now, folks, while the purpose of the parable is not to present a succinct soteriology, in other words, this is not uh, some parable to somehow give a concise survey of the doctrine of salvation or even the doctrine of forgiveness, for that matter, it nevertheless Um, purposely makes many parallels 
And I might just hasten to add for a moment, there's a very important principle. Whenever you come to a parable in the word of God, you need to focus on the central meaning of the parable. And you need to avoid any temptation of forcing peripheral details into some kind of a a doctrinal box. Because, friends, not every detail in a parable is designed to illustrate every nuance of theology. And you can get into a lot of trouble if you try to do that. So, this parable is about Christians. The context is obvious. This is not about unsaved people. This is about Christians. Again, the context makes that obvious. And also, we see that uh, he's speaking to those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. Well, the kingdom of heaven is certainly the body of Christ. And the king is nothing more than a reference to God, who is the sovereign Lord and king of the universe, as well as, according to verse 35, our heavenly father. And the slave would be a reference to anyone who is subject to the king, both great and small. And that would have been the case even in the analogy of the ancient Near East when there was a king. Everybody, even if they were a wealthy aristocrat down to the very poorest slave, they were all slaves. They were all subservient to the king. They were all under his authority, as we as Christians are under the authority of our king. And the parable suggests that the first slave was some kind of a wealthy aristocrat who somehow owed the king an inconceivable, unpayable fortune. So verse 24, we read that it's time to, for the king to settle accounts with the slaves. And he finds one who owed 10,000 talents, murias in the original language, which is the largest numerical term in the Greek language. And here it's used figuratively to describe an amount that could not be counted. By the way, we get our word myriad from this particular term. And you say, well, I wonder how, uh, you know, how much would that be if it were 10,000 talents? Well, we can read in First Chronicles 29 that the total amount of gold given for use in the temple was just over 8,000 talents. All right. So that's less than 10. And we even read in 1 Kings 10, 14, that the weight of gold, which came into Solomon in one year, was 666 talents of gold. So you get the idea that this is a lot of money that this slave owes the king. In fact, the historical tax records of the Roman Empire tell us that the total annual revenue collected by the Roman authorities for Idumea, Judea, Samaria, and Galilee would only amount to about 900 talents. So, this slave owed a debt he could never pay. And friends, this is a marvelous picture of our sin debt before a holy God that was paid in full by the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a staggering thought when you think of it, That we have been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb who bore the penalty that we deserved. The one who gave his life as a ransom. And his incalculable payment not only satisfied the infinite and holy justice of God, but also through that he lavished upon us the infinite riches riches of his grace. Making us sons and, and treating us as his own son. All who are now joint heirs in Jesus. Those are staggering thoughts. And friends, when you think of it, though we are sinners by nature, though we were conceived, the Bible says, in iniquity, 
Though we, from birth, are rebels that constantly commit high treason against the glory and the majesty of Almighty God, He still forgives us. And though we are utterly saturated with sin, and though we are completely offensive to God before we come to Him in Christ, Though even an eternity in hell could not expiate even the slightest sin, He forgives us through Christ. Beloved, this is a merciful forgiveness beyond comprehension that we have in our salvation. But unfortunately, most people don't grasp the magnitude of this forgiveness because they do not grasp the magnitude of their sin. Now, notice this, notice this slave, again, represents a Christian whose debt of sin has been forgiven. Thus, he's, he's part of the kingdom of heaven. But, here's the point, he has wasted his life. He's been like the prodigal son, and he's accumulated an enormous debt of sin as a believer here. And perhaps in light of the context of Jesus' sermon, he might be one who... Uh, fits into the categories of those that Jesus has just described as he has rebuked his disciples. Remember now, he's been rebuking them because of their pride and their bickering. They've been arguing and trash-talking each other about which one's the greatest in the kingdom and which one's going to have the highest status. He's rebuked them for being causing others to stumble, living lifestyles that are superficial and 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 those that are uh, condemning those that are refusing to separate themselves from the world. Verses six through nine. Also, those that despise other Christians. Maybe this maybe this is what he was having in mind when he was thinking of this slave that was accumulating the sin debt in the kingdom of heaven, despising other Christians. Verses 10 through 14. Remember. When you look down upon other people, you're insensitive to their needs, you're indifferent to ministry, you're indifferent to using your gifts, you're critical, overbearing, you're slanderous, slanderous, you're, you, you, you accuse people falsely, refuse to discipline your children. We went through a number of those things. Or perhaps it's even those that he's thinking of that refuse to reprove brothers in sin, those that, that turn a, a blind eye and a deaf ear to those living in sin and have no concern about the person's spiritual welfare or the purity of the church. We don't know what all was in the mind of Jesus, but we do know this is a reference to some servant within the kingdom who is living in sin. And certainly all of these examples the Lord used are indicative of Christians, shall we say, that waste their lives. They're in the kingdom of heaven. But they just squander their opportunities to serve and to love, refuse to exercise their gifts, refuse to glorify the God who, who has showered them with every spiritual blessing according to the riches in Christ Jesus. And now what we see is that not only is such a one indifferent to the debt of grace which he has received so freely, but also, this kind of Christian is predisposed to the heinous sin of pride and unforgiveness. After all, life is all about me. I've got my ticket to heaven and now I'm just going to kind of, you know, live my life. The world orbits around me and my needs and my happiness and my rights. And when you offend me, you're out. 
like the countless stories of convicted felons, those who have been guilty of various crimes, where they come before the parole board and they they plead with the board to be released from prison. And then soon after they're free, they commit yet another crime. This is what we see in this parable. So this slave had taken advantage of the king. Perhaps in the parable he has embezzled money from him, spending it upon himself, even as Christians embezzle from God, wasting the resources that he has given us to serve him and to glorify him. Even as we squander the precious minutes of life on on fun and frivolity versus serving the king. Even as we waste opportunities to witness, to serve, to disciple, all because we are too busy with more important priorities of life, namely making me happy. I think of Paul's words in Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 15. Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Bottom line, folks, life is short. Don't waste it on yourself. Don't waste it on yourself. So in verse 23, at the end, the the king wishes to settle accounts with his slaves. And at the end of verse 24, he discovers one here who who owes him 10,000 talents. But notice verse 25, since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. Now, folks, think of this. Obviously, the king up to this point had been gracious to his subject by not demanding payment. But now it's time to settle accounts. Enough is enough. And selling him and his family into slavery was a way of recovering some of the loss and punishing the servant. Now, by the way, here Jesus is alluding to a, an ancient custom that they would have been aware of in that day where they would literally take a person and their family and sell them into slavery for a period of time. And their servitude would then contribute to uh, the payment of some contracted debt. We don't have any idea what restitution is about in our days. We just understand incarceration as if that works. But that's what he's referring to. So this hard-hearted, self-centered, untrustworthy slave is suddenly confronted. And the king exposes his sin as well as the severity of its consequences. And even with this, again, the king is gracious because the servitude of the condemned man and his family would would have been just a small fraction of the repayment. And so even here, the king is forgiving the majority of the debt. Now, naturally, the guilty slave pleads for mercy in verse 26. The slave, therefore, falling down, prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. Now, friends, catch this. Obviously, the slave had no comprehension whatsoever of the magnitude of his debt. He doesn't realize that it is impossible to pay it off. 
even as we have no comprehension of the severity and the scope of our sin, even our sin that we commit on a daily basis. Our deceitful hearts conceal those truths from us. And sometimes even the spirit of God, I believe, is merciful, convicting us slowly and gradually, knowing full well that we are constantly hopelessly biased in our own favor when we examine our hearts. But the king showed loving kindness for this naive slave in verse 27, where we read that the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Now, dear Christian friend, please hear this. Every sin is a debt to God. And our conscience makes this very clear to us. As it accuses us, we are liable to his law. We must all be held accountable, though ultimately only the blood of Christ can settle the account. Now, I know you will say now, Pastor, wait a minute. I just cannot see how I qualify for such a debt. Um, In fact, I will call you to worship every Sunday and I will give you an opportunity to confess your sin. And folks, when that happens, if you sit there and you say to yourself, you know what, I just can't think of anything that I've done. Folks, I, I'm concerned for you. In fact, if the truth be known, we need much more time than a few seconds to confess our sin. And some of you have even told me that. Beloved, please hear this. Such naivety with respect to our own sin, is as dangerous as it is stupid. Listen, friends, if you stand daily in the presence of a holy God, if you humble yourself before the penetrating light of divine revelation, please know you will have no problem seeing your sin with absolute clarity. And you will constantly be humbled by it. I pity the man who refuses to acknowledge his debt of sin. The psalmist said in Psalm 19, verse 12, who can discern his errors? In other words, who can see all of his sin? The concept there grammatically is no no one can. Then he goes on to pray, acquit me of my hidden faults. And in Psalm 40, verse 12, we read, for evils beyond number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to see. And by the way, that's one of the amazing things about sin. It blinds us to the rest of our sin. I can't even see it, he says. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head. And my heart has failed me. And yet he says in verse 11, Thou, Lord, will not withhold thy compassion from me. Thy loving kindness and thy truth will continually preserve me. Well, tragically, this foolish slave in the parable could not comprehend the magnitude of his debt, nor could he grasp his inability to pay. And beloved, even as Christians, we are insolvent. We remain bankrupt when it comes to repaying our daily debt of sin. And there's no way that we can somehow tilt the scales of justice back in our favor 
by good works so that we can somehow offset the bad. Sometimes I know people think that way. Yeah, I've got a little sin over here, but, you know, I've been doing this over here at the church as if somehow that makes it okay. Because, beloved, even our righteousness comes from God. No, we remain debtors to his grace. And friends, every day of our lives, we should be destroyed. But Christ is always there to render payment. And we rejoice in that. Our sins have been forgiven permanently, past, present, and future. Now, let me remind you, this is very important. In our justification, we have been declared righteous, but we were not made righteous. There is a forensic judicial declaration that now because of Christ, we are righteous in the sight of God. But that does not mean that now we live perfectly righteous lives. Therefore, we continue to sin. That's why in the doctrine of sanctification, we see that there needs to be ongoing confession Certainly, we're no longer slaves to sin, but we still sin. That's why we're told as Christians in 1 John 1, 8 and 9, that if we say that we have not have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, friends, first we experience the permanent forgiveness that is found in salvation, in our justification. That's a one-time act. But we also need daily forgiveness for sins that are committed to restore fellowship and blessing with the Father. In fact, Jesus emphasized these two aspects of forgiveness when he said in John 13:10, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet. In other words, you've been bathed in regeneration. You've been bathed in your justification. That's taken care of. But now all you need to do is wash your feet. That's a daily thing. He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. Now, back to the parable. Those who tend to mitigate both the seriousness and consequences of their sin will often be quick to say, my Even in this parable, Jesus paints such a harsh, such a harsh punishment for the slave's sin. I mean, being sold and and is going into servitude. My goodness. Oh, friends, not so. Not so at all. In fact, this was merciful because, for one thing, he is still forgiving far more than is owed. But also what the Lord is doing here is giving a contrast contrast to the glory of his mercy that is about to be granted. Indeed, we can never fully appreciate what we have in Christ until we first grasp what we deserve without him. And herein is the contrast. Oh, child of God, please, please hear this. What marvelous clemency that we see here in this text. What an inconceivable pardon awaits those who humbly bow before a forgiving God, before divine exposure, as we constantly and daily come before the Lord, come before his throne of grace, confessing our sins, always endeavoring to become more conformed to the image of Christ. Longing to be more submissive to the king's commands. 
Because indeed, His will, His commands are not burdensome. Well, the slave is convicted, at least at some level, in his heart, of some, not all, of his debt. And he pleads for and receives complete pardon. Then notice what he does. Verse 28. But that slave, again now, after having been forgiven completely, that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. Now, folks, this is this is astounding. He goes out and he physically assaults another man who only owed him 100 denarii. By the way, a denarii was about a day's wage. And so, you know, this was about 100 days worth of pay or, or wages that could have been paid. An infinitesimal amount compared to the debt that he had been forgiven. And again, such a lack of mercy betrays the shallowness of the, the forgiven slave's repentance. I mean, think of this. Had he fully comprehended the enormity of his debt and the magnitude of the king's mercy, then he would have shown mercy rather than cruelty. Beloved, if you are an unmerciful, unforgiving person, this is a sure sign that you are blind to your own daily debt of sin and indifferent to the mercy that you have received. You know, I have found over the years that those who typically are quick to find fault with other people and to be relentless in their criticism of criticisms of them are typically the ones that are themselves the greater sinner. Those with the largest beams protruding from their eyes tend to be the most vigilant spectators in the eye of their brother. Because blinded by their own sin, they believe that they can see their brother's sin with 20-20 vision. Child of God, the more we stand amazed at the grace received, the more amazing will be the grace given. We of all people should be most merciful. In verse 29, we read that his fellow slave now falls down, begins to entreat him. And it's interesting that he uses the same words that the forgiven slave had used. He says, have patience with me and I will repay you. Verse 30, he was willing, unwilling, however, but went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. Now, folks, think of this. His remedy for repayment was as stupid as his attitude was wicked. I mean, forcing his fellow slave to go into a debtor's prison like they used to do. I mean, that would make it impossible for him to ever repay the debt. And again, this is a beautiful picture of the absolute absurdity and insanity of an unforgiving Christian. Practically speaking, Whenever we see spiritual bullies, whenever we see unmerciful control freaks and pathological antagonists in the church, we should be appalled and become righteously indignant. And that was precisely the reaction of the fellow slaves in this parable, verses 31 and 32. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave. I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? 
Again, folks, this is never to be the character and the conduct of a Christian. Paul made this crystal clear to Titus, wanting him to warn those in the church, therefore warning all of us in Titus 3, beginning in verse 2. He said to tell them to malign no one, to be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. He goes on to say, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, beloved, even as God has habitually, even as he habitually forgives us according to his kindness, We must also forgive so habitually that it becomes a knee-jerk reaction when we are offended. We are to literally have a perpetual attitude of forgiveness towards those who may offend us. I know people will say, well, but, but, but what if they're not repentant? Well, what you need to do then, if it's serious, is you need to lovingly confront them. Remember Galatians 6, 1, try to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. But, folks, even in the context of that, you keep your arms wide open to forgiveness and you pray that they will run into your embrace. That's the attitude that you should have. Like the father of the prodigal son. Remember in that wonderful story in in Luke 15, he sees his son from a long way off, the text tells us, which indicates that he was looking for his son to return, that he was praying for that reconciliation to occur. And he's looking and he sees his son from a long way off. And the text says that he felt compassion for him. And he ran out and he embraced him. And he kissed him. And he brought out the best robe and he put a ring on his hand. The text says they put sandals on his feet. He killed the fattened calf. There was a great celebration And in Luke 15, we read that he said, for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. That's the attitude we are to have. Even if we are an offended father, broken hearted over a profligate son. Beloved, forgiveness and retaliation cannot coexist. Often. I've seen that offended parties feel justified in withholding forgiveness, and that's dead wrong. We're never to bear a grudge. Instead, we are to simply ignore the injury, to treat people as a friend. Although we are to pray and sometimes even confront to call them back to fellowship. Peter obviously learned much from all of this. In 1 Peter 4, 8, he later wrote, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers what? A multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. In Psalm 19, verse 11, we read that it's a man's discretion. A man's discretion makes him slow to anger. 
and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. Folks, let me make it real practical. The next time you feel offended, whether it's real or perceived, rather than rehearsing violent thoughts against the person that has mistreated you so terribly, why don't you stop and make a list of all the ways that you have offended the Lord in the last week? And then when you get through with that list, why don't you make a list of how you've offended your wife or your husband or your children or people that you work with? And then rather than devising some wicked counterattack, why don't you ask a far more important question like, what's for lunch? When do I need to rotate my tires again? I, I mean, folks, the point is this big deal. So you were offended. Welcome to a fallen world. Get over it. Get over it. In fact, why don't you call that person up and ask him over for supper? Be kind to those who despitefully use you. Now you say, well, but what if it's a pattern? I mean, what if this person is just, I mean, they're just a scoundrel. What is that? Well, okay, yeah, that, those type of people would require a confrontation. The Lord has already addressed that in the whole process of discipline. But, you know, most of the time, that's not what's going on. Most of the time, we're like little children with wounded egos. Mommy, Johnny took the truck from me. I had it first. I mean, that's how we act. We know that. But you ask, well, does 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 my forgiveness replace the need for justice? I mean, I mean, how can I forgive somebody that has committed some crime against my family? And does that forgiveness mean that they shouldn't maybe go to jail? Well, of course not. There are always consequences to sin. The Bible is full of this. David, for example, in his sin, even though he confessed his sin and he was repentant and God forgave him. Nevertheless, he lost his son. He lost his kingdom. But he was forgiven. By the way, remember that the consequences to our sin, even when we've been forgiven, are not to exact payment. Christ has already paid for the sin. All right. That's not the purpose of the consequence to make us pay. There's no such thing as penance. That's all over with. I mean, Christ said on the cross, it is finished. But rather the consequences of our sin is rather to remind us of the severity of our sin. So that we won't do it again. So that we can see our sin in contrast to the holiness of God and the results of all of that. And boy, even as a Christian, isn't God merciful in his chastening and in the consequences that he gives to us, even as sinning children? And again, folks, remember that whenever somebody has offended you, God has been offended more. You think you're the wounded party? No, no. Think of it this way. He who is most holy has been infinitely more offended than we who are least holy. So again, get over it. Well, his fellow slaves petitioned the king. By the way, another great picture of church discipline. He's, they're seeking now to bring their brother back into fellowship. They see his wickedness. Verse 34 they come before the Lord and his Lord is moved with anger and handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Now, this throws some people off, folks. This is torturers, not executioners. 
This is divine chastening here, not eternal wrath. This is a Christian. This is not eternal judgment. You see, here is a picture of divine chastening applied to Christians who refuse to keep short accounts with their daily debt of sin. And therefore are those that have a proclivity to be unmerciful and unforgiving towards other Christians. The word torturers here could be translated tormentors. It was used in other passages uh, in in other literature of of, uh, those that keep prisons. Um, A picture of a person being imprisoned and severely punished. You see, now this slave's debt is even is even greater than what it was. And now he's beginning to languish in. In torment. As he has to now bear up under the torment of a guilty conscience. Now he begins to to suffer various forms of chastening from a loving father who will do all that is necessary to somehow bring his child, bring, in this case, the slave in the parable to his senses. And folks, this is so sad. I've seen this so often. In my ministry over the years. People who live in sin as Christians and as a result They're given over to the torturers of life and they will inevitably be unmerciful and unforgiving along with all of the rest that precedes that. And the torturers will include things such as certainly just a forfeiture of divine blessing in their life, multiplied hardships. You will see it in physical problems, financial problems, relational problems, social problems, career problems. And it doesn't mean that every time you have a problem in life that it's for that reason. But many times it is. Many times it is. And God uses the tormentors and the stressors of life, the stressors of this world, to gradually wear down a rebellious child. Friends, please hear this. If you sow the wind, you will reap the whirlwind. That is a law of morality that's built in to this universe, even as there are laws of physics that are inviolable and cannot be changed. And when you violate them, you suffer the consequences. So, too, you violate the moral order of the universe that God has placed within this world. And eventually you will suffer for it. And even when we've been forgiven of it. And what I have found that the more people fight him, the more people remain indifferent to his grace, the more they cause other people to stumble, the more they despise other Christians with their haughty attitudes, the more they live for themselves, the more they refuse to show compassion and forgiveness to other people, the more severe the discipline, the more severe the torturers of life. Many times what you see is when people are young, they're experiencing it and they may not really realize it. But it gets worse and it gets worse. And after two or three or four marriages and after numerous and terrible incidences in their life, many times by the grace of God, they come around. And they confess their sin. When we confess our sin, he is merciful He is gracious to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. James chapter 2 and verse 13, we read the judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. 
Well, friends, I challenge you, if you are a self-appointed speck detector in your family or in the church, you're always finding fault with others. Or if you seldom, if ever, mourn over your own sin and really, honestly, you have no hungering and thirsting after righteousness. You just kind of float along living your own life, wasting opportunity, squandering opportunities to serve the king. If when you do confess your sin, it's a general thing like, oh, God, forgive me for my sin, rather than, Lord, forgive me specifically for the way that I treated my husband last night at the dinner table. Lord, forgive me specifically for what I did yesterday in the privacy of my own office at work or whatever it may be. If you find yourself that you're easily offended and you're unmerciful and you're unforgiving and you've got a record of wrongs and you're like that snake and you're just ready to strike out at your husband or somebody else. Every time they mess up in anything, you're going to remind them of what they did 37 years ago. When my Aunt Sally came over with my whatever, and here we go with the whole travelogue. Folks, if that is you, I can assure you on the basis of the word of God that somewhere in your life you are living under divine chastening and you are experiencing the tortures, the torturers of life. And it's time to clean up your act and to confess that and to get serious about the debt that you have before the king and to confess that and to deal with that. And when you realize that you who have been forgiven most need to be most forgiving, God will begin to shower you with blessing. Well, many people don't see it that way. And yet the Lord has said in verse 35, so shall my heavenly father also do to you, do to you. The rest of you Christians, you disciples that are hearing this, those of you that are in the house here with Peter and Capernaum, those of you that are in Calvary Bible Church, so shall my heavenly father also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Not a superficial forgiveness, not a, hey, I want you to know uh, uh, you're forgiven. But I mean the type of forgiveness that that that, that restores and 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 brings back into fellowship and doesn't. Bring it back up. That's the type of forgiveness that the Lord is talking about. Well, my friends, these are sobering truths. And I plead with you to hear them, to meditate upon them, to take them into your closet of prayer and ask the Spirit of God to clearly expose your character and your conduct and your wickedness, if it is there, and then confess it with utmost humility. And after confessing it, then repent of it as an act of your will. See it for the wickedness that it is and turn and move in a completely different direction. And then as you do, watch the blessings of God begin to be showered upon you. Let's pray together. Father, though your word is clear, it is also hard. Because we all stand guilty as charged. And indeed, we praise you for the forgiveness that is ours, that is permanent in our justification. But, Lord, we want to keep our feet clean. So I pray that you will continue as you bear with us, that you will continue to expose our sin, Lord, that we might not forfeit blessing 
in our life. And Lord, that we might not live in the pathway of divine chastening. Lord, thank you for the mercy and the grace that is available to all who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. May we avail of it much for your glory and for our joy. I pray in the precious name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.